This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Welcome back and, and welcome, Shoryu. I was, I was asked to introduce our speaker today, and uh, I, I will say that he, he needs little to no introduction uh, to a number of us, so I will give little to no introduction. Um, <laughs> Shoryu is... It, uh, from Texas, actually, at least, um, I don't know about like completely originally, but he did go to grad school here in Austin and was one of the early practitioners and if I'm not mistaken, one of the early residents of AZC as well. A couple of decades ago, he was certainly ordained here at AZC by Barbara Cohen in the early 2000s and a little bit later, uh, made his way to Bloomington, Indiana, where he became a student of Shohaku Lokomura, from whom he later received Dharma transmission. For the past, I don't know, about 10 years, I guess, uh, Shoryu has been practicing at uh, a small mountain monastery in Northwest Arkansas in the, in the Ozarks, um, Gyobutsuji, and uh, has also trained at Tassahara and studied with many of the teachers that many of us are familiar with, including Blanche, Reb, um, Kosho, and, and Galen Godwin. So he's kind of an old friend, really, and um, I'm really glad that we could have him here to speak today. I guess my, my main regret, really, about it being virtual um, <laughs> is that uh, we are unable to be blessed. I don't know, may, maybe Monty will make an appearance. I, I, I don't know, I don't know if he's allowed where you're speaking, but but show the, the I maybe I shouldn't say Shoryu's dog, but the dog that found his way to Shoryu traveled down to Austin with him a couple of times, you know, in the past five to seven years. So so tell Monty I said hi, Shoryu, and and uh, welcome. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to to be back in Austin, sort of uh, to be to be in the Zoom realm. So. <laughs> This has been our reality for about a, a, a year for, for many of us. So it seems it may be changing, but uh, for now it's what, what we have. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy and I feel honored and privileged uh, to be here speaking at uh, Austin Zen Center, which I will always consider my home in, in some way. You know, uh, as Bruce said, I, I began practicing in Austin and um, started sitting at the Clear Spring Zendo before it was Austin Zen Center. So uh, the roots and connections run deep with, with your Sangha and I uh, appreciate being, being here so much. And um, thank you, Bruce, for that introduction and uh, Toro-san and Mako and all of you for, for having me here. And uh, Monty, thanks you, I think too. I kind of wish he could give the Dharma talk because he's been a <laughs> he's been a great teacher to me and he probably could do a better job on some level actually in expounding uh, the Dharma. <laughs> but uh, I'll say I'll say what I can here. Well, today I would like to uh, talk about taking refuge in the in the Dharma, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And of course, this is a very uh, basic teaching, a very fundamental uh, teaching to Buddhism. It's it's pretty much the, uh, we think the earliest uh, form 
of becoming uh, a Buddhist formally, you know. Uh, uh, so it's uh, a very basic practice, but very deep and boundless practice. And so um, I've been actually giving some talks on the precepts for uh, people who, uh, mainly for people who would like to study them with uh, at Gyobutsuji. And uh, um, so this is the, the talk that I'm giving on taking refuge. So I appreciate the opportunity to do it here. Um, but I think that, I hope that there will always, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's always something for us to learn from each uh, part of the precepts because uh, precepts really encompass all of our practice. And I think each precept uh, encompasses all of the precepts. You know, there's, we're just really taking a, a look at our practice and, and the precepts from a different perspective with, with each uh, part of the precepts that we study. So um, I know that possibly what I say will be reviewed for, for many of you, but uh, I hope that we, we can always find uh, something, something else to learn or, or return to in studying uh, each part of the precepts. So for the purposes of, of my study, I've been studying the uh, Kyoju Kaimon, which is Dogen Zenji's uh, comments on uh, bestowing the precepts. And um, so this is a very old text. Of course, it was uh, written down by his uh, disciple, Ajo, but um, I've just been going through it and, uh, and sort of uh, talking about uh, my comments on Dogen Zenji's comments. So at the point of taking refuge in the precept ceremony, this is, uh, of course, first we do repentance, then we take, uh, we take refuge. And then we have the three pure precepts and the 10 grave precepts. So the three uh, refuges are really the first three sets of precepts that we you know, take in the ceremony. And in Japanese, you know, we say namu kie butsu, and that's I take refuge in, in Buddha, or namu um, kie ho, I take refuge in Dharma or namu kie so, I take refuge in Sangha. So this namu um, kie, uh, both of these words sort of mean I take refuge, but it seems there actually is sort of a different nuance to both of these words. So namu, of course, is, is uh, we often see it as uh, homage to, or you know, like homage to uh, Amida Butsu. So, this is an expression of um, submission or homage or honoring, you know, the three treasures, uh, a, a sort of expression of deep devotion. Kie is um, apparently the um, Chinese word, the original Chinese word means to return, uh, literally means to return. So, or it can mean to um, come back to, return, or give something back to. Uh, you know, in Buddhism, we usually think of it as, as taking refuge or relying on, but it's, um, you know, very interesting. The combination of these two words, I think, are very deep. Uh, Dogen, Dogen Zenji said in his uh, comments uh, in the Shobogenzo on taking refuge, he said, Kie means to devote oneself to returning to. 
So the form of this returning is that uh, is like that of a child returning again and again to its parent. So we're um, honoring deeply the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, and uh, returning to it moment by moment, actually. So this is very uh, important, I think. This is what we do in our Zazen practice, of course. And uh, we're returning again and again to the present moment, to the body, to the here and now. And I think this is actually, you know, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This kie is can be um, a surrender to, not only a returning, but a, you know, a surrender, a deep giving over to. So, you know, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it's not like, uh, you know, going somewhere in some different realm and hiding out and, and finding protection, of course is returning to that reality that uh, uh, is the true, you know, the more fundamental true reality where we're not faced, excuse me, with the competition, the uh, conflict, the sort of conceptual uh, clinging and uh, battling, you know, that we can find in the normal world, in, in our workplace sometimes, in the political realm, this is the place where we can just be. And so, you know, this world, this realm of competition and comparing oneself to, to others or what we feel we need to be or what others want us to be or what we think others want us to be. This, of course, is what the Buddha taught is the source of suffering. This is samsara. And, you know, the Buddha said that, uh, one of the ways he talked about the, the cause of this uh, suffering in samsara is the um, you know, subject-object relationship. He talked about this in his teaching of the 18 elements. Basically what he said is that when, when uh, the uh, sense organ comes in contact with an object, greed, hatred, and delusion arises. Uh, he, he gave his famous uh, fire sermon saying everything is burning you know the sense organs are burning the uh, the object is burning the contact with the object is burning and this burning is greed hate, hatred and delusion so that is samsara he said basically um one of the ways that we uh escape or we um uh, get out of this uh, samsaric transmigration or this realm of uh, suffering, these realms of suffering, he called, uh, he called it departing from the five skandhas, you know, teaching the five skandhas or the five different, you know, uh, categories of our life, the five elements of, of, uh, of uh, what we usually call a self. The Buddha said, we cling to that, we cling to the subject-object relationship within that. But when we let go of those five skandhas, which are basically uh, the mind and the body, you know, uh, four aspects of mind and uh, one aspect of the body or the form, he, he called, uh, you know, leaving samsara, uh, departing from the five skandhas. 
And so in saying that, for example, how, you know, how do we do this? Of course, this is a whole nother series of, of talks, but basically one way he expressed it very early was he said in, from in the Sutta Napada, which is a very early text, he said, the, the awakened person or the person in awakening does not see himself or herself uh, inferior to another person. They do not see themselves superior to another person. And they do not see themselves equal to another person. So usually we think, oh, well, we just see everybody as equal. But he actually said this very early time that uh, basically saying we don't make a comparison. And, um, you know, Dogen Zenji in, in Mahayana Buddhism, the way we express that, for example, Dogen Zenji said, within the entire 10 direction world, there is no one who is not the self. So that was the way that Dogen Zenji expressed it in Zen masters, you know, before him. And I think it's expressing the same thing that the Buddha did in the Sudhanapada. Dogen Zenji called, you know, departing from the five skandhas, he called that dropping off body and mind. So, you know, five skandhas, uh, four of them are mind, one of them is body. The, the Buddha called that departing from the five skandhas. Dogen Zenji called that dropping off body and mind. <clears throat> so, but for Dogen Zenji, dropping off body and mind is Zazen. So not something we do to drop off body and mind, but uh, dropping off body and mind is Zazen. So and the way that is so is that in our Zazen practice, we let go of this subject-object relationship that Shakyamuni Buddha spoke of. You know, usually we grasp this relationship as me, or we, we grasp it as real. Uh, we say there really is something there, and we judge it, and we uh, manipulate it or try to escape it in, according to our preferences. But, um, you know, the Buddha said that is the source of our suffering. But in Zazen, we sit, you know, in the Zazen posture, all kinds of things are coming up in the mind and we let them, we welcome all of them and let them come, but we um, open the hand of thought as Uchi said, we don't grasp onto them. And so they, as Suzuki Roshi said, we open the front door of the mind and the back door of the mind and we allow thoughts to come in the front and go out the back and we don't invite them to sit down for tea. And you know, that is our Zazen practice. <laughs> And that is dropping off body and mind. So that is what we're taking refuge in, really. So we can think of this, I think, if, if uh, you know, those of us uh, who have a job in the, the marketplace, uh, uh, you know, who have to go out into the world, many of us are working at home right now, of course. But when we do go into a different culture other than our Zen center, it can be difficult. You know, there's competition. People are trying to take our job, maybe, or they're trying to do better. Or, you know, you might have a great work culture. This may not happen. But sometimes 
some aspect of our life will be like this. Um, we, we see that it's based on competition and, uh, you know, um, conflict and difficulty. But uh, this taking refuge is like coming back to home where we, we don't compare, we don't have this competition, we don't have this um, comparison to who we want to be or who others want us to be. So, um, so it's also, it's not a place I said of hiding out. Sometimes we think of it that way. It's actually for me, I think it's a place of fearlessness because we don't have to fear appearing to ourselves to be something that we don't want to be. So we can investigate deeply uh, and be honest with ourselves and with others, especially in our Sangha. That's why our Sangha can be so uh, precious because we, we understand that we're the bottom line, so to speak, is practice. So we can be honest with each other and uh, we don't have to be afraid to hide our delusions because you know, we all are, you know, have delusions and we are working together as one to, to, um, you know, uh, express awakening. So, you know, for example, well, usually we think, I mean, we have some part of us that we have to defend and we have to look good. You know, we, we uh, in our culture recently for for many of us, it's we don't want to appear to be racist, for example. Well, the worst thing we could think of was to be would be to appear to be racist. But you know, we just had an anniversary, a very uh, kind of sorrowful anniversary last these last few days with the death of George Floyd. And um, you know, we this kind of thing is up in our culture, of course. We we're understanding that our culture and each of us as individuals need to examine, you know, who we are as a nation and as a culture and as an individual. But if we're just uh, trying to protect and say, there's no racism here or there's no racism in me, and we put our energy into protecting the self rather than investigating the sources of racism, that's a problem, you know? So taking refuge allows us to not hide out in this way where we can say, yes, we have made mistakes. We have deep karma that we need to address and we don't, we're not defined by it. You know, we, the, the past is already gone and the future isn't here yet. And so we need to accept our karma from the past, but it doesn't define us. You know, the Buddha's basic teaching was we can change, even though we need to take responsibility for our karma or the, if we made racist activities, you know, we have to take responsibility for it. That's the only way we can express non-racism. So, you know, for me, I admit this, uh, sometimes I'm ashamed to say, uh, some years ago, I, I found myself going into a, uh, a predominantly black neighborhood and realized that I was uh, saying, is my car safe here? And at first I was like, uh, when I first realized I was doing it, I, I, I denied doing it. I said, you're, no, that's not what you're thinking. Or, 
feeling. But then I realized that, wait a minute, you are, man, you know, you are feeling that and you better look at that, you know, and take responsibility for it. So we have, you know, in that moment, we have the ability to let go of the self and express something different than a racist self or a racist uh, thought or emotion or so we have the opportunity once we take responsibility and examine but if we're just defending and trying to not see ourselves or others or the nation the culture whatever if we're defending rather than investigating you know that's a problem so this taking refuge is the place of safety, so to speak, the place of um, not defending and not comparison, comparing. So anyway, so this is very much uh, connected to repentance, of course, which is the thing in the, the uh, ceremony, the precept ceremony that we do just before this. And I, um, so repentance and taking refuge are uh, very much intertwined. So um, the repentance is coming, actually returning to the three treasures, to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We repent in our zazen by coming back to the here and now. Um, we repent of, uh, you know, having said an angry, judgmental thing to someone by returning to the here and now, you know, taking responsibility and then uh, address, you know, having more clarity to see what can be done in this relative here and now to repair that. But if we're just defending and trying to escape that, there's no opportunity for practice or, you know, repentance. So the precepts are a way, are, are this uh, place that we return to to repent, so to speak. You know, this is a loaded word for some of us who had Christian upbringing, but it doesn't mean the same thing as, you know, it does in some other traditions. It means returning to our refuge and expressing truth, or expressing awakening. So, um, you know, in fact, Dogen Zenji, in his commentary in the Koji Kaiman, he says, when you take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you become qualified as one who has acquired the great precepts of all Buddhas, continue of the, uh, as a student of the Buddha. Do not become a follower of other ways. So I'll talk more about parts of this in a moment, but he says we become one basically with all of the precepts when we, when we return to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And, um, so this is the, the repentance I was talking about. Um, all of the precepts, as I said, are just sort of a different way of looking at this reality that we return to. And um, so at, uh, the three treasures, Dogen Zenji talks about three aspects of the three treasures. And so we can, can be helpful for us, I think, to um, talk about those three aspects in order to understand, you know, what the three treasures are and what repentance and uh, taking refuge are. So there are the, um, we have uh, the absolute three treasures, the manifesting three treasures, and the maintaining three treasures. So 
maybe it's easiest to talk about the uh, the manifesting through treasures first. So Dogen Zenji says about the uh, manifesting three treasures. The one who was born in the world and realized awakening is the Buddha treasure. The Buddha awakened, what the Buddha awakened to is the Dharma treasure. Those who learned from the Buddha and the Dharma are the Sangha treasures. These are called the manifesting three treasures. So this is kind of the relative uh, perspective, you know, these three treasures in Zen, you know, we have a relative perspective and an absolute perspective. And this is, you know, very important and deep, uh, a basic teaching in Zen. So this is a kind of um, way of talking about taking refuge too. So this is more maybe the kind of uh, relative perspective uh, of course, the one, you know, the one who was born in the world and realized awakening is Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, Dogen Zenji is talking about Shakyamuni here. It's the historical person who, as a young man, you know, saw uh, suffering, saw an old person, a, a dead person, and a sick person, and a mendicant monk, you know, when he escaped from his palace to, to go check out the world one day and he he was deeply moved by that and uh you know went out and vowed to find the source of the end of suffering and um became a shakyamuni buddha so that is that is the buddha treasure in the manifesting three treasures so what the buddha awakened to is the dharma treasure so what the Buddha taught and also the reality, you know, that he awakened to. Um, you know, the Buddha gave us relative practical things to do in our life to realize this awakening, you know, the eightfold path, uh, the 12-fold chain and um, so on. All of the teachings of Buddhism that uh, Shakyamuni taught to his followers and also um, actually allowed them to awaken to the reality that he awakened to. So he didn't say, you know, it wasn't his creation. He said it was a, like finding a treasure that had been lost in the, in the forest after a long time. This was uh, something he awakened to, the Dharma treasure, the teaching of the Dharma and the reality, you know, that he awakened to. So those who learned from the Buddha and the Dharma are the Sangha. So the historical uh, students of the Buddha, who we can have much gratitude for preserving his teachings and for practicing and uh, developing the community. And also those so-called lay people that supported the Sangha, you know, were really part of the Sangha too. There could have been no practice of monks, uh, there could have been no, you know, really awakening of Shakyamuni had not the, the, uh, the young woman come and given him nourishment before he, um, you know, sat at that place of awakening. So all of those monks were supported by lay people, so to speak, in the entire, you know, the entire world that produces food and 
so forth. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So these, you know, manifesting three treasures are like the, um, as I said, the relative uh, perspective where we need to take responsibility for our practice. So I'm an individual, I need to take responsibility. I practice my practice and you cannot practice for me. You know, I have to take responsibility. The, the Buddha's, one of his basic teachings was cause and effect and taking responsibility. So let's go on then. We can talk about then the, the absolute three treasures. And Dogen Zenji said about the absolute three treasures. He said, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the Buddha treasure. Being pure and free from defilement is the Dharma treasure. The virtue of peace and harmony is the Sangha treasure. These three comprise the absolute three treasures. So the first part about Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the Buddha treasure. Uh, this, as I say, is that kind of absolute uh, perspective from this, you know, unity, the, the perspective of unity. You know, the boundaries that we usually think of between people, things, and so forth are, are just conceptual things that arise in the mind. You know, the Buddha said that's a product of the subject-object relationship. And this, uh, this Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi we let go of that relationship and that is Buddha. Then Buddha is manifest. So dropping off body and mind or Zazen, Buddha manifests. Departing from the five skandhas, Buddha manifests. That is, uh, that is Buddha, which includes everything because we drop off those boundaries that we usually cling to that say, this is me, that's you, I need to get my way before you do, and that's the main thing that matters. In this uh, way, <laughs> Buddha is manifest, and we all live, we, we understand we are living the same Buddha life. So, you know, Dogen Zenji had a very interesting way of expressing this. He said, um, actually, the name of my temple, I'm actually not right, not, I'm not there right now, I'm at a place in Conway, Arkansas, where um, my partner lives, and I have much better internet, uh, so it's a lot better place for giving a talk. But um, he said, uh, well, let me, the reason that I brought my place up is that it's called uh, Gyo Butsuji. And this Gyo Butsu is the name of a Buddha that uh, Dogen Zenji uh, talked about in Shobogenzo. And, he had a chapter that's called, you know, Gyo Butsu Igi, or the dignified conduct of practicing of the Buddha's practice. But he actually said that that practice was the name of a Buddha, Gyo Butsu. So uh, it's a very different kind of way than interpreting that normal, you know, kind of traditional Buddhist phrase. So um, anyway, he said about Gyo Butsu, he said, all Buddhas, without exception, fully practice dignified conduct. This practice is called practice Buddha. Sharing one corner of the Buddha's dignified conduct is to get done together with the entire universe, the great earth, 
and with the entire coming and going of life and death. This is nothing other than the dignified conduct of the oneness of practice and Buddha. So that is a Buddha being uh, manifest when we practice as that is the Buddha treasure. You know, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the Buddha treasure. So, um, you know, we can talk about this a lot, but basically wherever we go, we're here. Whatever we experience is here and now. We can never leave this reality of impermanence and interconnection. And, um, you know, here and now is uh, a manifestation of uh, practice Buddha when, you know, when we practice. So um, Zazen, this is of course our Zazen practice, this practice Buddha. Being pure and free from defilement is the Dharma treasure. So being pure and clean means being free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, you know, that means um, practice Buddha before the separation into subject and object, before we, um, you know, separate and say, this is me and that's that. You know, Uchamaroshi called it uh, the reality before we cook, we cook it up with con concepts. You know, we can call it original mind or Buddha nature or whatever we want to call it. But, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha said, departing from the five skandhas, Dogen Zenji said, dropping off body and mind. That is uh, pure and free from defilement. So the defilement of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the virtue of peace and harmony is the Sangha treasure the absolute Sangha treasure. So, you know, from this perspective, I think it's very important and very deep. Everything is our Sangha. All people, all things, all insects, all birds, all Republicans, all Democrats, all Palestinians, all Israelis, you know, all black people, all white people are all part of our Sangha. And um, we don't practice you know, just for some certain group of people that we call Buddhists. Um, so there is some faith here that when we practice this, uh, this uh, peace and harmony of Zazen permeates through this entirety of time and space in some way that we don't, you know, understand with the conceptual mind. But sometimes when we study it, we do, we do see that it happens. You know, I won't go into that, but we do see that our Zazen um, permeates everything we do, you know, in some ways. Uh, you know, we, we, we can see that in the relative realm, but um, I, won't, I won't go into that now because uh, I don't want to take too much time. So, um, in this absolute perspective, as I said, it's another way of talking about Buddha. The, the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha are, you know, just another way of talking about each other. The Buddha is the same. The Sangha, you know, my, my uh, teacher always said, you know, we can talk about reality from the perspective of either, you know, like a, he made an analogy of a hand. You can talk about a hand as 
one hand, a unified hand, or you can talk about it as five fingers. And either one of those ways you can say that's, you know, a hand, um, or you can say it's five fingers, but it doesn't really change the reality of it. It just changes the uh, way we see it. You know, each finger has its function and, um, you know, a thumb is not a uh, pinky, but they really depend on each other. And if you cut off a thumb, it's really, you know, it can't function. And the hand is, of course, uh, really affected by that too. So we can think of it as a hand or five fingers, but really, you know, we can think of it as Sangha or we can think of it as Buddha, but, you know, it's just a different way of looking at, at reality because we need some way to think as human beings about it. Okay, so um, now to talk about the uh, maintaining three treasures, the final uh, of the three treasures, <clears throat> Dogen Zenji says, the one who appears in the sky or in the world in order to edify heavenly and human beings is the Buddha treasure. The truth that expresses itself in the form of the Buddha's teachings and recorded in the scriptures in order to teach animate and inanimate beings is the Dharma treasure. The people who relieve others of various sufferings and save them from the burning house of the three worlds are the Sangha treasure. These are the maintaining three treasures. So the maintaining three treasures are here and now, this us. Um, and it's very interesting, this uh, one part, the part that he talks about at the beginning about Buddha. So the Buddha treasure is the one who appears in the sky or in the world in order to edify heavenly and human beings is the Buddha treasure. So it seems that, you know, after Shakyamuni passed away, uh, Buddhist, you know, the Sangha realized there could be no other Buddha really to replace him. We couldn't say, well, this is the next Buddha. We're going to put him as the Buddha treasure. So for a while, people avoided even, you know, depicting the Buddha uh, in artwork. And, but eventually, um, for various cultural reasons, uh, the Buddha statues began being made and um, venerated as, you know, the Buddha treasure. So um, it's kind of interesting to study that because, you know, that's not an idol, but I think uh, the reality there is that, um, well, first, let me go back a second. This, this um, word appearing in the sky uh, in these texts, in this text here, refers to Buddha statues appearing in the sky. So the interesting thing is that the Chinese word for sky can also mean emptiness. So it's acknowledged, you know, that these statues, I think, are produced uh, from practice, from prajnaparamita, from the emptiness of practice. So a someone who makes a Buddha statue, they're not just carving that because, you know, it's fun. It probably is fun or, you know, but it's a practice. It's their Zazen. And so they, you know, when you buy a Buddha statue like that, that's made by, you know, somebody in that way, you're 
um, you know, you may not buy it, it's offered possibly, but uh, that is, uh, you're receiving that person's practice. And so here's, another, here's one way that we see that Zazen permeates throughout time in a way that we don't understand because the person venerates this, the piece of wood and they carve it and they let go and they just put their total heart and mind into making this statue. And, you know, we take that statue and we see um, the devotion and we see Buddha and the heart, you know, our heart opens if we open to the statue and if we venerate it. And so we're connected with that artist, you know, who made that, that practice. Even though that artist may not be alive anymore, that artist's work is alive and um, that prajna paramita, that emptiness is expressed with that artist and with all beings, you know, with the piece of wood, with the tree that went into making the wood, with, uh, you know, the sunlight that nurtured the tree, the soil that nurtured, you know, the, um, the tree to grow. All of that is being venerated, you know, as Buddha in that practice of uh, venerating the Buddha statue. So, you know, we can make the statue into a toy or an idol if we want to. We can make anything into that, but um, that it all depends on our approach to it. The way that we, you know, if we approach it either as an object of our desire or as uh, Buddha, you know, prajna paramita, opening the hand or um, practicing with it. So, you know, it's interesting because the first one of the things that really got me hooked into Zen was a book I read and, and uh, I bought it at uh, the book, the big bookstore um, on Lamar, uh, used to be on Lamar and uh, Book People, still there. And it was called uh, Zen Guitar. And uh, it was, I remember uh, there was about a stack, there was a little book like this and there's so many guitarists, I guess, in Austin that <laughs> they couldn't keep them in stock at that time. But anyway, it was a cool book because it talked about um, playing guitar as an expression of emptiness. And, um, you know, it, you, we could talk about it a long time, but basically, you know, it said you have to take complete responsibility for your part. And at the same time, listen with your whole body and mind to what's going on around you as a, like for improvisation, for example. Um, you know, when it's your time to support, or maybe that you're just, you know, that you're the rhythm guitarist or whatever, and your whole body and mind goes into taking responsibility in the here and now for what you're doing, but being completely part of the whole. And so, you know, the practice is the intersection of that. Of we can, we express the, the unity through our individuality, you know, which seems like a complete contradiction, but um, is really, you know, Zen practice. So this is the way, you know, in Japanese uh, culture, art, uh, Zen art, this is the idea between Zen art. But this, this can really, of course, it, it applies to anything we do. We just often don't see the results of what we do in connection to another human being. Sometimes we do, but um, something like a symphony, you know, where 
each person has their part to play, uh, but the whole, of course, is way different than any one individual could produce. You know, that we, we see that and it's so clear that um, a symphony is really, you know, a good metaphor for emptiness because um, complete individuality and complete universal expression is there. Uh, but that's actually the truth of all of our life outside of the cushion, off, outside of the zendo, in the zendo. So we're not just talking about what we do in zazen and, and taking refuge in that way, but taking refuge in every moment to express this, you know, symphony of our life. And so I think that's uh, what they're talking about here, what Dogen Zenji is talking about with the Buddha statue is art being expression of emptiness and the Buddha, the Buddha, that um, absolute Buddha actually can be that Buddha statue. There's no, there's no real difference there. So going on then to, as he says, the truth that expresses itself in the form of the Buddha's teaching and recorded in the scriptures in order to teach animate and inanimate beings is the Dharma treasure. So, of course, that's this today, that's Zen text, that's the, the uh, early canon, that's uh, Buddhist uh, scriptures and teachings. And, you know, Dogen Zenji did, really didn't like the Zen uh, kind of catchphrase of transmission outside of letters and words. You know, that's kind of a basic Zen thing that we, that is talked about in Chinese Zen especially, but he really didn't like that, you know, because uh, we wouldn't have any of the teachings without these words. And so even those, even those Zen masters that said, don't read the scriptures, had to tell you with words, you know, don't read the scriptures. So um, if we just sit there and do nothing, you know, we're not practicing as a bodhisattva, you know, silence might be the real expression of reality in the silence of Zazen might be the deepest form of reality that we can say, we can express from a certain perspective. But if that's all we do and we never say anything, we, we are not expressing this uh, Prajna Paramita, this Bodhisattva practice where everything is our, included in our life. So we have to say something in order to, as Dogen Zenji said, help relieve those, all of us, you know, from escaping the burning house. So these words that we say uh, are kind of like, you know, skillful means, of course, that this uh, phrase here, the people who relieve others of various sufferings and save them from the burning house of the three worlds of the Sangha treasure of course, refers to a parable from the Lotus Sutra. And the burning house, you know, um, is samsara. The, uh, it comes directly from the fire sermon where, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha said, everything's on fire. And so in the Lotus Sutra, uh, the Buddha uses parable of a burning house and um, he's, his children were in there playing with toys and they were so distracted that they, didn't realize they were about to be burned up. And so he 
uh, told them that they there were things, you know, an ox cart and a deer cart and a go cart, a goat cart outside of the house so that, um, you know, they could come out and play with those special toys. He knew each child and which toy would appeal to them apparently. And he told them, you know, come out here and get this, this thing that's better than what you're playing with in there. And when they came out, of course, they all got this magnificent white ox cart that um, was beyond any expectation. And so uh, that ox cart that is, I think, you know, of course, the one vehicle teaching. And that is, that means everything we do, not only are all Buddhist traditions expressing Buddhist teaching, but all things and all interactions that we have, are, we do as an expression of Prajnaparamita and to save all beings as a Bodhisattva rather than something to, you know, just awaken ourselves or, or be peaceful, but everything we do, the entire world and in, in, uh, all of its functioning uh, are the Sangha treasure. So we use that to express uh, our vow, you know, our vow uh, to help people escape, including ourselves, this suffering in the burning house. So again, you know, we see here that uh, all of these three treasures, even though that is what we, that refers to us today, the manifesting three treasures is us today. But that means, you know, that one vehicle teaching means we're practicing with all beings, uh, not just for our particular Sangha or our particular family or our culture or our country, but for all beings, you know, are included in our, our life. So that what what he did, you know, what we we did with that um, with that uh, one vehicle teaching is change our relationship to that subject object relationship, which is, you know, some teachings say we have to get rid of that. The, the, the teachings like outside of the scriptures, you know, give up all study of scriptures. It's just the work of demons. If we give up that subject-object relationship completely, we have no way to express the Dharma or help others. But we change our relationship in some way, you know, willfully kind of make a mistake. And uh, that's all we have in our life is this subject-object relationship to express the profound reality of Buddha. So it's just like the Buddha statue. It can either be a toy for our desire and be part of the burning house, or it can be an expression of awakening. So that's the difference in how we, you know, express our zazen practice or this subject-object relationship, um, you know, in our in our daily life. You know, it can either be a toy of our desire or a source of suffering, or it can be an expression of Buddha. Okay. So. Um, so this maintaining three treasures, I think here, you know, we had the absolute three treasures, which is the absolute perspective, and then um, the manifesting three treasures, which is, you know, this relative concrete expression of the Dharma. And then I think this maintaining three treasures is here and now, you know, that 
it's the reality that both this absolute and this relative realm are expressed here and now in practice. So each, you know, each one of these three treasures is expressing the, the other actually, you know, um, but in this maintaining three treasures, that's really what we're saying here. Practice, we, we allow our Zazen practice to be expressed in everything we do here and now. So um, I'm going long here, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, just a few more things to say. Um, the final words of Dogen Zenji when he was talking about taking refuge were, when you take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you become qualified as one who has acquired the great precepts of all Buddhas that I just said, as we just said. Continue as a student of the Buddha. Do not become a follower of other ways. So, um, do not become a follower of other ways means don't uh, go back into the burning house. It doesn't mean, I think, necessarily don't uh, become another form of Buddhist, don't become a Pure Land Buddhist, or don't become a Christian. Uh, that's not the important part. The other way is the way of samsara, of chasing after desires and comparing ourselves to others and competing and, uh, you know, relying on that subject-object relationship as reality which is, you know, the subject, uh, the source of suffering. So again, you know, the way we let go of that is through our Zazen practice. And the way that we bring our Zazen practice into our everyday life is that we pay attention, you know, for example, um, when we're, if we're having a discussion with someone and uh, we, we feel anger coming up and judgment about what they're saying, we can either just go with that and say this person is a jerk and I don't want to talk to them anymore or I'm just going to think of something to totally crush their argument or we can listen, uh, let go, say, you know, I'm, there it is. Uh, there is uh, greed, hatred, and delusion and, um, you know, let go at some point. And so the anger is just energy. You know, the anger is not bad or the energy is not bad, but it depends on what we do with it because we need some energy to face our life and to face uh, social problems. Sometimes we need to be motivated by something that feels like anger to do something different. But we don't, um, you know, we don't cling to it and say, you know, we're defiling Buddha when we say this person is a jerk and we believe it. You know, the thought might come up, but if we really believe that, we're defiling the Sangha treasure and the Buddha treasure. Even if that person, you know, some people, we it's almost just like, oh, well, they, you know, they, they've never done anything but evil things almost, you know. But this is where our faith comes in somehow that, um, this reality of letting go of Buddha is greater than any one individual manifesting it. And that um, 
You know, when we really let go and we don't go into that realm of samsara, of judging and reifying our thoughts and, and labeling people as evil, that um, then that is the only route we have to really coming to some kind of true awakening on a relative level with all other human beings. So that's our vow. That's, uh, that's where it takes some faith. And that's why we study these teachings and we study the Heart Sutra, you know, we study Shobo Genzo or, you know, we study Sandokai or uh, all of these teachings. So we have some faith and understand and that we can let go. That's why Dogen Zenji didn't like the fact of uh, just saying, well, don't read anything or don't study the scriptures because it's true. Reality is only manifest really when we practice, but we make our studying part of our practice because human beings are intellectual creatures that need some, some intellectual, uh, you know, or, or devotional nurturing. You know, a bird flies and a human being thinks, but the way that we uh, don't make our thinking into an idol and worship it, is by studying the Dharma, you know, and letting go. You can't do just one or the other in my, in my view, but they are all, you know, all uh, part of our practice. Anyway, so I think that's about, um, one, th one last thing I would say, you know, if you read uh, Dogen Zenji's um, chapter on taking refuge in Shobo Genzo, it's, it sounds pretty crazy in some, <laughs> in some points, quite frankly, but as so much of his stuff does on, on some level, but uh, you know, he talks about these miraculous things happening when we take refuge, like, you know, I, I can't even remember what they are now, but all, um, all of these miraculous things going on that are beyond any human uh, measurement. I think that really means, you know, where he's really talking about the shift in our life when we shift from taking refuge in this, this, the individual self to the universal, you know, self to taking refuge in vow or Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So, you know, even, even Buddha, the, the, one of the earliest teachings of the Dhammapada is taking refuge in nothing but the self. And it's the, uh, what is this self though that he was talking about that we take refuge in? You know, it's the transformation of the self as an individual, you know, person that needs to get their way to a self that is interconnected with all things and included in the life of all beings. And yet when he said that, he said, we are the only ones who can take responsibility, you know? So these two contradictions, Victory things. I'm the only one who can practice my practice, and yet you are completely part of my practice, and I cannot practice without you and all of the all things that are included in that. So um, I think that's all I have to say today. I'm sorry for going so long. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for for having me. So I will say for anyone who wants to ask a question, raise your 
literal or virtual hands. I only have two, I don't have the three um, <laughs> levels of hand here, but I will call on people as, as I'm able. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll just talk for a bit. I'm not seeing any hands right away, so I will jump in because I did have a question. Sure, you, you kind of like teased us at at least one point. Um, you brought up the phrase, excuse me, you mentioned um, Zazen pervading everything we do. And I, I realized that that in itself could be the subject of a talk, a series of talks, a book, <laughs> on and on. Um, but I, I, I guess I would just invite you, like, if, if you wanted to expound on that somewhat, um, I, I, would, I would appreciate um, just, just like how that fits with, with what you were talking about, this idea of Zazen pervading all that we do. Sure, yeah. Um, I think there's a few ways you could talk about it. Um, you know, one is it's not something we do in order to uh, supplement our life or something that we do, you know, to become more stable and uh, sort of have a better relationship with people. Although that might be uh, sort of a relative side benefit, which is totally okay. But what the way we approach our Zazen is that we endeavor to uh, allow everything we do be an expression of it. So we um, allow it to permeate our actions rather than trying to take it into our life. So when we open the hand of thought, we, those uh, separations that, that really are the thing that keep us from awakening our are dropped off. So we are sitting, you know, in everything. And that's why we can't say there's some value to Zazen. You know, you cannot say there's some value to something that includes everything because there's no comparison. You know, uh, to, to talk about the value of something, uh, you need a relative relationship. So um, all of that is dropped off. In Zazen. So, and the other thing that the reason Dogen Zenji, for example, talked a lot about time, I think, is that we, we really have a, a very, of course, limited uh, perspective on time. Uh, you know, we really don't understand it on a relative level how. Uh, time and space uh, work and how they're an illusion on, on this level, you know. So the simple thing like my teacher talks about is in time, for, for example, in terms of time, you know, the past is already gone. The future has not yet come. So we, it's clear that those are conceptual ideas as far as human experience go. So all we have is the present moment, but even the present moment has no length. You know, we cannot measure the present moment because if we could measure it, that means it has, you know, a past and a future. <laughs> so 
So the, you know, it's a point uh, that has no point. It's actually not there either. The present moment is not, doesn't really exist. So, so um, the human beings with, to, in order to, you know, navigate our experience as human beings, have developed these very useful tools. You know, one of them is uh, linear time that works, you know, in, for us as human beings. Um, but we find in other ways that it doesn't work. You know, we've, already, we've just started finding out in the early 20th century, there are some parts of science that doesn't even apply to, you know, that things aren't the way we thought they were. But somehow we have a, you know, we take these little slices out of reality uh, and we call it time and you know, call it space and we say that that's real. But, um, you know, when we start practicing deeply and looking at the nature of, of our reality, we understand we don't, we don't know much. And uh, we, our view is very, very limited. So the more we understand, I think the more we see, we don't, we don't really understand much at all. And so one of the things that I like to talk about, for example, that I talk about all the time and my teacher talked about it and his did too, that, you know, the simple thing of like uh, the unfolding of a human life is, is incomprehensible because, you know, I have almost nothing in common with the five-year-old boy that in 1966 or so uh, we called me. I don't have the same thoughts, you know, I don't have the, the same uh, appearance. My parents aren't the same, you know, as they were then, although we say that they're the same parents with the same name, but the time was different. I was, you know, a lot smaller. I have almost nothing to do with that boy. But the, uh, on, from the other perspective, I would not be here without him. And there is some way that he is me. But on another perspective, it has nothing, you know, he's not me at all. I am not a five-year-old boy. And so, but we say that's me, you know, that's a relative construct that we've come up with as a human being that's very necessary for us to cope with life as a human being. It's not wrong but it's not truth, you know, it's actually a fiction that we say, I was born in 1961. It's, it's, a, it's a fiction really, you know, but it's useful and, and in some way it's true. So when we sit in Zazen, it's the same thing, like uh, it's the same thing with the person, the Buddha statue, on a relative level, we can see how in one moment of Zazen and carving a Buddha statue, that, per, that could permeate through years, centuries. You know, we find Buddha statues from, you know, centuries uh, ago. Or, or we have, we think of, uh, we might think of some, uh, well, we think, I can't remember her name. I mentioned earlier, we think of the, uh, if anybody remembers her name, tell me the the woman who um, offered the Buddha, you know, the nourishment before his uh, awakening. You know, if she 
she, I don't have any reason to doubt that she existed historically, but let's say she did. That activity is still resounding. We don't even know who that person was really historically, or, you know, um, we probably don't have a lot of information about her family, but all of Buddhism, you know, could count on that one activity of offering this, men, you know, half-starved mendicant a bowl of rice gruel and milk. You know, all of Buddhism could be <laughs> because of that activity, you know. So we just don't know. And uh, that was her practice. That was her her heart opening, her zazen, you know, in that moment. And so these are the same kinds of things that, you know, that activity has permeated 2,500 years now, perhaps. And there are other ways on a level that we can't even talk about, I think, um, that our zazen permeates through time and space. So, because space is the same way. We say, you know, I'm here in Arkansas and you're there in Austin, but, you know, if I were able to drive down to Austin uh, right now, or I would never go anywhere but here, you know, I would be here the entire time. So, there's no real separation or there's no, you know, it's just a concept that there's some place different called Austin, Texas and uh, Conway, Arkansas. It's a very useful um, designation and, and a necessary and true one in a certain way. But on another level, it's a fiction that uh, when we really settle down into our experience, we see that this is just a conceptual tool that we've come up with to um, navigate our experience and so those are the kinds of things and that's kind of why Dogen Zenji talks about a lot of these weird seemingly weird things about time and space and how they don't really exist in the way that we think they do I mean it's just a way to let us uh, have faith and understand that um, you know we have a very limited perspective and our practice permeates through, through time and space in some way we don't understand, I think. So we, we had, uh, I think, Tim and Maka both chimed in with Sujata as, as, as the name Sujata, of Sujata, right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Anne. I don't, probably a lot of people here get daily dharmas from Tricycle, but I found one yesterday that I thought was really appropriate and I'm going to read it. It's, they just send quotes daily. But this one is from uh, Zinke Blanche Hartman from Brief Teachings. And she said, when we recognize without any doubt that if we act from unwholesome thoughts or motives, we will experience suffering, it really helps us to live a life more beneficial, not only to ourselves, but to everybody around us. And I just wanted to share that. And, and uh, Shorya, thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and thank you very much for, for sharing that because uh, it, it's absolutely true. You know, it's exactly what we're talking about here, I think, is that uh, thoughts, activities, simple act actions, simple um, thoughts even, really 
really do affect deeply everyone and everything around us. And sometimes we can see it very, and it's a very simple practice or, I mean, it's a very simple teaching, but it, there's so much depth and profundity, you know, belief uh, beneath it. And that, that's the kind of thing that the Dogen Zenji is talking about. I mean, he's, that's all he's really trying to tell us to do is, and that's what the Buddha, of course, taught too. Uh, very simple, but deeply profound, you know, teachings. Uh, Melanie, I see your virtual hand. And now my virtual image <laughs> and voice. Digital, I guess. Um, hello, show. Um, gosh, I was so looking forward to your talk today, and I was at the grocery store at the beginning, so I may have missed things. Um, and uh, gosh, I feel like I'm going to listen to this again because it, I, I want it to permeate more. Um, I don't feel very articulate about it, but uh, I think it it describes. I think what what attracted me to Zen was that it fit the reality of how things are about the subject object, but yet we're, we're all connected. And it, I think it's something that I thought maybe at a very young age that I don't see, I don't see how we can uh, not think of others as we think of ourselves, you know, that they're also a human being, etc. And maybe, maybe some people have called me a, a Pollyanna <laughs> kind of, but I think I have that bent. I have a Pollyanna bent, but I feel like Buddhism has that kind of bent, but not in a namby-pamby way. What other weird words can I throw? I like namby-pamby. Um, and also, uh, but I think I'm a comparer, like, of myself to others. I, I, I do that all the time, and I can see, and maybe because of uh, this practice and maybe therapy, too, that... Um, it has really shaped my life in ways that um, that limited me. Like I limited myself by doing that, but it's I don't have feel like I have a lot of control over it. Meaning that I always place myself lower. On the other hand, I also think through zazen or maybe through this practice that that I actually place myself higher too. <laughs> they kind of go together. So I, is there a question? The question is that I have is, I'm just curious about your life. Like you chose to do something in the woods in Arkansas, right? I don't know what your, what your daily life is like, but I think that to me is kind of extraordinary. What's it like when people come to practice? Do you have people stay long and is it, is it like anybody can come there? That sort of thing. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I would would say about your comment too, just it occurred to me that uh, you know one of the teachings that I love about uh, love from Uchamaroshi and repeat often. So forgive me for repeating again. Is and he actually got it from Sawaki Roshi, I think. Uh, you know, he said when he first started practicing uh, with Sawaki Roshi, who was a great uh, outgoing person, you know, a very loud, domineering type of personality. And Uchamaroshi was a, a very um, introspective, introverted, artistic, intellectual person. And so um, 
when he first started practicing with Uchamaroshi, he said, oh, well, if I sit Zazen with uh, Uchamaroshi for a while, you know, I'll become more like him and uh, get some of that good, you know, Sawaki Roshi stuff. And um, it will rub off on me. And he asked Sawaki Roshi, you know, um, if I practice Zazen with you, will I become more like you? And Sawaki Roshi probably yelled and said, no, you know, I was like this before I started sitting and you won't become one bit more like me. And so, <laughs> you know, Uchama Roshi didn't really believe him in his, in his heart, but uh, said, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and do this and sit with him anyway. I don't believe it. And um, uh, 20 years later, he reflected and asked himself, you know, was he a bit more like Sawaki Roshi? And he answered, no, he was not one bit more like Sawaki Roshi, actually. But what he had come to realize was that um, for the Dharma to flower and bloom in each one of us, we, we are completely who we are rather than, uh, you know, completely trying to be some ideal of the great Zen master or who we think a Zen master should be or who we think we should be. And he said, you know, famously, a, a rose blossoms as a rose and a violet blossoms as a violet. And so, you know, he thought of Swaki Roshi as a big, red, beautiful rose and himself as a small, tiny, you know, violet. But each one of those flowers has its own beauty and they each might need some different kind of nurturing, but both of them express uh, the gift of, of blossoming completely. And so, you know, there might be some way that we understand when we, what we once thought were hindrances to our nature, we, uh, we might have gratitude for them someday and understand how we can actually express the Dharma through them. You know, so it, it might be like you were talking about feeling Pollyannish or, but, uh, you know, we can say, well, it's Pollyannish or that's devotional. Like um, Nagarjuna himself even said, uh, devotion is a way to enter the Dharma. You know, all of these things are just um, think toys or, you know, they're either, they're not toys, but they can be um, if we grasp them. But they're just ways to enter reality. You know, some people are, devotional, some people are intellectual, some are philosophical, some are skeptical, some are, uh, you know, more readily convinced, so to speak, but any of these ways we can enter, you know, through the Dharma somehow when we just uh, clarify that relationship to ourselves. So when we, when we think of ourselves as a self-deprecating person, you know, we find some way where we see the energy and the sensitivity that we have perhaps and use that in service of the dharma and then it becomes humility or then it becomes gratitude or then it becomes you know sensitivity or the ability to see things that others less sensitive might see and the, the domineering person has their way of expressing the dharma too just as Sawaki roshi did the extrovert or the you know, none of these ways are better than the other. It's just a matter of clarifying our relationship to them. And 
but anyway, at Yobutsuji, we, yeah, we, you, um, people can come uh, and stay for a sashin or can come for some shorter period uh, in practice. And we haven't had anybody there for a while now, but uh, in July, we're going to, um, I think, officially, you know, open back up again for, for visitors. And um, please uh, check our website if you're interested in coming for a day or two or for a sashin or, you know, be in touch and um, definitely, you know, come. But uh, a normal day there would be, you know, when, when people are there together practicing as a song, it'd be a lot of like, uh, you know, like the Tassahara schedule would be just, you know, we don't, we don't get up that early anymore. I don't get up uh, at, uh, start sitting at four anymore. <laughs> I'm getting uh, too old to keep that up too much longer, I think. So we start at five, but basically, um, you know, we just do a monastic schedule there and, uh, and do Sashin every month. So one of the, the reason that was really founded was to do a Sashin every month, uh, 10, 10 months out of the year. And um, uh, there's just a, you know, a real, um, well, on my part of gratitude to be able to live that way. And I think a, a, a good, you know, a deep offering to, to uh, have that available to others who want to do that as a machine and, um, and visit for some time too. So please come, yeah, if you like. Thank you. That was very helpful. And uh, yeah, that, uh, there's so many things. I really appreciate your talk today. Uh, it was very rich, and I too don't have any complaint about uh, the length of time. And, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hi, Shurio. Thank you. Pat. I loved your talk. It was so so clear. Everything was so clear i i don't know that i have a question i just have so many takeaways some of them i can't remember i love the way you started out and just talked about how uh, the energy this weren't your words i guess but the energy that we that we use comparing ourselves and you know takes us takes us away from doing anything or seeing anything clearly um and I loved what you said about words too, towards the end of your talk when you were talking about birds fly and humans think. Um, it's just such a simple way to look at how important words are to us. I, I, um, I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, but it affected me deeply. And I keep hoping to get back to Gyobuchiji again, and I'm glad you're going to be open in, uh, in July. Uh, so uh, do you still have to have a pretty robust car to get down the hill? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Pat. I, I, I appreciate your comments um, very much. And yes, um, actually what I've been doing recently is just uh, picking people up on our drive. We have a really steep and um, kind of messy drive at times. And, and it's hard if you don't have a four-wheel four drive vehicle to, 
to get down there. But believe it or not, uh, Pat uh, made it down here. I was, it's been several years, four or five, six years now in a, like a second generation Prius, I think. <laughs> well, Somehow. with a lot of help from you, I think. I, yeah. <laughs> I think our drive was has deteriorated some since then, but um, anyway, yeah, I just picked folks up uh, on the drive now. We're working on it, trying to get it better little by little. It's <laughs> it's uh, you know just impermanence. The thing is always uh, eroding, but but I, yeah, I appreciate what you what you were saying earlier in your question about the, the thinking, I think is something that can be confusing, you know, in, in Zen tradition and some Zen teachings actually uh, outside of sort of Zen really emphasize more just that, um, you know, thinking is a real problem. Like it, you just have to stop thinking because the subject object relationship is the whole problem and we need to get rid of it. But but I think, uh, you know, as I was saying, everything that has been handed down to us and all of our culture and everything that we're using right now, language and, uh, you know, technology to connect in this way, all of this is a product of thinking. And so it's a matter of our relationship with our thinking rather than the thinking itself. So uh, human beings, uh, can't exist without thinking, you know, um, it's possible that you could, you could go into a trance state and somebody could, you know, make offerings to you while you sat there not thinking. Uh, and there might be traditions like that, but that, I think it's clear that Buddhism and definitely, you know, Mahayana Buddhism made it very explicit that the Bodhisattva way is not that way that we, uh, help others to, um, you know, we, to, to awaken. We don't just go off into nirvana, so to speak, and peacefully uh, abide without uh, thinking of others. So uh, a human being has to use thinking, and the Buddha did it too. That's why he got up off of his, his seat of enlightenment. You know, and that the story goes that, uh, you know, Indra had to implore him to teach because he didn't think anyone would get it, you know, but I think it's symbolic of him trying to say, well, anything I say is really going to be a mistake, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because uh, some people will understand it and it's worth the effort um, to, to help others. And so the rest of his life was 40, 45 years walking around India uh, teaching and giving, you know, people words uh, to practice with. So the problem is uh, in part that we use our uh, thinking as an idol. That's what really the Buddha was talking about is the problem is that we think of the five skandhas as real. We grasp them, you know, that's where the five skandhas, you know, of of uh, clinging, you know, there's the upadana five, the upadana skandhas, and then there's just the skandhas. So the five skandhas of clinging, uh, you know, those are the ones where we're saying this is real and this is me and that's you. 
but he, um, you know, he also just talked about the five skandhas without clinging, you know, departing from the five skandhas. And so he continued to use his five skandhas his entire life uh, to teach and to walk, you know, just to walk around and, uh, you know, take a bath or, um, you know, eat your food. You have to use the five skandhas. So um, it's our relationship with thinking when, when we think what we conceptualize is true and real and, and permanent or uh, substantial, you know, that's the problem. We kind of make our thinking into an idol and we let it uh, drag us around and cause suffering for ourselves and for others. But, but when we realize that the scriptures, you know, for example, are the finger pointing at the moon, then they become the moon, you know. Uh, Dogen Zenji, you know, had a chapter Shobogenzo entitled, you know, Expounding Scriptures. Like the, the entire universe is, is one big uh, sutra, expounding the Dharma, you know. Uh, then anything becomes an expression of awakening rather than a toy. So, yeah, human beings think, uh, birds fly, fish swim, and um, we need that. Uh, we need that as a human being, but, but we don't you know, cling to it. Uh, Uh, any any last questions or thoughts before we break out? Bruce, I have a, a, maybe a last thought or or a thought. I don't know if it's the last thought, but um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a a, a question. Sure, you, but I just wanted to mention that um, you went uh, you use the analogy of um, an orchestra as or a symphony as a expression of emptiness. And I, I think where you were going was um, um, the idea that the players, the musicians, the members of the orchestra are maybe expressing emptiness by participating in this thing. And, and together they're creating a larger whole, much larger than they would, than any one of them individually. Um, and, um, so my training is in music and composition. And um, so the question I have there has always been, how do you be the composer and express nothing or emptiness? And um, it's, it's a little more clear to be an, uh, the, um, the, let's say there's 30 people in the violin section and you're number 27. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> maybe my, my role is clear, but if you're the composer and you're literally saying, all right, there's a hundred people and they're at my control, they're expressing my ideas. Um, how do you do that with emptiness? That has long been a question for me, having training in, in the arts, how do you express yourself and not, and not invest 
in your ego or how do you express yourself and not um, invest in, in the clinging? Um, and I feel like you addressed it over and over again in this conversation. Um, you just, just in what we were just talking about now, you were, you were talking about that. Um, and in that regard, I just want to say that you've really answered, you've, you've pointed in a direction for me into how to answer this question that I've just long held really since, um, I started being a musician, which, which uh, being a professional musician, which goes back to 1990 for me. So, um, yeah. So thank you. Really lovely and rich, uh, talk. Uh, you're very welcome. I, I mean, thank you so much for that comment because it, it gr brings out a really great point. And the, the the analogy of a symphony is really easy to use, as I was saying, because it's just happening in in time and space in the here and now. But but really, we see the emptiness of the symphony through what you just said too, because all of those people. You know, if we if we ever examine the here and now and what those people are doing, the composer is completely concluded in that too, and so is uh, I don't know if they use animal hair anymore in the violins, but you know, so is the animal that uh, the hair from the violin is used with. You know, that is all in that expression of what we think of as just you know a symphony in that moment but and this goes back to like bruce's question too it's really incomprehensible uh what we do how it affects the here and now in so many ways and you know your music could be played by people you know many many generations from now and may you know may or may not be but uh in each moment, that's our practice. We we have some understanding that it, it can be so with whatever we do in some way that we don't, you know, we don't understand. And so in your case, I think uh, it's something that is a great question. We we do, we need to get to know ourselves deeply. It's part of the reason that you know the Buddha's teaching of cause and effect and karma. Are, are deeply meaningful to us. So you are really the only one who's gonna know when you're clinging to your ego and you're writing this for yourself rather than as an expression of practice. And you can only understand and express it and let go of it, you know? So the more you get to know what that feeling is or what the conditions are that support that, the more you can let go of it. So it's part of the reason that our, our, our study and our practice uh, is so important is that we get to know our own karma. And so, you know, for me, when, when I'm starting to get judgmental, uh, I recognize that and I can let it go. And then, you know, uh, Prajnaparamita can be more easily expressed. But to clarify your vow that what you really want to do is express emptiness and not the ego, there's some part in all of us that I think wants that. You know, Sawaki Roshi said, we all have thief nature and we all have Buddha nature. <laughs> and the thief wants to make it me. 
but um, you know, there's some part of you that knows that all of the musicians that came before you and all the people that you admired and studied and all the teachers that you studied your, your, your art with are part of what you're expressing. It's not just you. And so to say it's just you is really a kind of defilement of reality and the three, the three treasures and even yourself, you know, it's like stealing or something. And so somehow we know that although each creative individual expresses it in their own unique way, and this is the Dharma, that we are in completely indebted to generations before us and for people supporting us now, you know? So that was one of the things I really loved about the guitar book was like, you know, having these guitar heroes talk about how indebted they were to the people who came before them and how uh, it's true of all of us. None of us could uh, be practicing without Shakyamuni Buddha now. I mean, and we are expressing him in our zazen, you know, that's the part of the Lotus Sutra that said he never left, that he's always with us means that he's with us when we uh, sit zazen and that we're, we, would, we would not be able to practice without him in some, some way. But there would be no zazen practice if we don't sit down and do it ourselves. And there is no, you know, uh, music to be new music to be composed unless you sit down and do it, but you're totally dependent on those that came before you. So the more we know and understand that and the more our heart opens up, the more we, we don't want to rely on thief nature, I think. And so we realize when it comes up and we can let go of it. And then as we take refuge in the three treasures that way in our vow, you know, and that feels, that feels like peace and joy. Thief, you know, stealing uh, for the ego just feels like samsara. It feels good for a while. It might be really good, but it always fades and uh, it turns into something um, less pleasurable eventually. It's not reliable. Thank you again, Shoryu. I have, uh, for everyone, I, I, I posted finally thanks to Choro for the nudge, the link that I promised earlier uh, to our local chat server and also to the Donna page. And I wanna mention the Donna page in particular because that's not simply for you know, our own day-to-day -day operations, but you can designate a, all or a portion of a donation to our visiting teachers. Like we, we obviously don't have the expense of bringing them in and, and hosting them, but still to acknowledge the time and and the years of practice that went into um, you know any given talk you know however many hours it, it took you sure you to prepare the notes like it was really it's, it's like the, the lifetime that led up to that right like it's the it's the the 45 year old novelist and someone says how long did it take you to write the book and he says six months well you know 44 years and six months so so anyone who who wants to express their appreciation to show you in a more concrete form the Donna link uh, can be used for that. So thank you again for your generosity to us, Shoryu. And I think that, um, I don't know if Mako wants to take the driver's seat, but we usually um, offer people the opportunity of a virtual tea and cookies via breakout rooms in, in, in this Zoomscape. So I, I will happily hand things off to whoever's going to, to take care of that.
Yes, thank you so much, Shoryu. I really, I just sent you a little chat, but I will just say here that it's uh, it's been a long time since we've practiced together in person. And I hope that soon, very soon, we can actually enjoy your company in the, you know, in the Zendo together, uh, non-virtually as well. I would love that. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Mako, for for inviting me, for having me here, and um, I did. I forgot to mention that we, you know, we practiced together. I think in the early two thousands at Tassajara. So we we go back almost as far as uh, as my relationship with Austin Zen Center. So it'd be really really lovely to be there again uh, for sure. I look forward to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you're. Yeah. Thank you so much for your 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 talk. I think. There was so much there and it was very helpful going drilling down into some of these you know these different aspects these three different aspects of the refuges um and so much more to uh to un uh unravel a lifetime's worth so yeah, yeah. thank you thank you thank you